yeah, we're gonna have to. I can't believe Chris disagreed with us about not doing a deep dive into the ethics. They did it. We just need to know, in his opinion, what what then were, was the ethical dilemma because they just said it was bad. Because you did, it was see, bad. this is why you need to have a discussion with him, and this is why I'm so crap arguing because I was like, <laughs> oh yes, you're right, Chris. Oh yeah, I didn't think about it that way, Chris. Oh, I see. Um, yes, slightly, you know, and slowly, kind of. My mind was edging away from that conversation and on to the next thing. Also, I couldn't remember the documentary that well. I didn't even remember one of them killed himself. So I didn't really have a leg to stand on. And then he was like, um, it's not the job of the documentary to go into the very nitty gritty aspects of this experiment. He does condemn it quite explicitly. But then the important thing is he focuses on what their story was after that. Well, I'll have to look that up then because I didn't see any consequences. You just know that they don't do it. But there's a difference between separating siblings at 12 and 10 and infants who are a few months old. I mean, that's just not the same thing at all. The, my problem at the time wasn't with the documentary. It was the fact that I wish more had been said or explored about this experiment. But you could argue also that, well, it was up to me to kind of find that. He's, he's shed a light on it and then you go and do your research. What he's talking about very specifically is the adulthood of these three people. And then you want to find out how they were separated at birth. Well, not that. It was the ethics. The, 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 the piece of our discussion was that they didn't outline what the ethics were. And I disagree. I think the, because the the whole point was that experiment, but the triplets just gave it a human interest angle. That's it. But the documentary was ultimately about the experiment. Now, nothing was... For him, the focus was very much on these three people and what they became and how they met as adults etc it wasn't about the ethics of separating them at birth that's interesting yeah no, no i i definitely saw saw mm -hmm. the experiment as being more central because otherwise you just learn about some middle-aged people with some problems um the whole point and also that's why they brought the twins in because otherwise if it was about them then they would not have needed to speak to the twins right who had the similar experiment experience it was about the experience the experiment which is why i just wanted it, it didn't have to take more than five minutes but i just want more than <clears throat> because the thing about it is like they say you couldn't do the experiment now right because you can't it's against the law number one now in new york to separate siblings but why it would take you a few minutes to explain that how they came to that conclusion that separating siblings like why now you can't do that um and also they didn't explain the logic of why this uh, psychiatrist thought keeping t twins together wasn't good for them and that it was better to split them up than to keep them together. And I, I just, you could do that in a few minutes. So, okay, great. Looking forward to that conversation. <laughs> Looking for that conversation. Okay, so I've got the intro here and we can get started. So, hello and welcome to My Dalarama's Top Picks. For new listeners, I'm Coco Green, armchair critic and aspiring academic with my co-host Abla Candeloft, film programmer, journalist, and researcher. In Top Picks, we use post-colonial Afro-pessimism and Bordeauxian theories to discuss race and class in drama, documentary, mystery, and horror films. Now in its 10th year, My Die Champions independent film and using the medium as a platform for underrepresented and oft ignored voices. So today, as usual, we will start with our top picks and discuss our films of the week or fortnight rather. The first is The Imposter 2012 and Little White Live 2014. Thank you. I should say, because we're probably going to keep that, <laughs> that previous discussion was about three identical strangers, which we discussed in the last episode. And my husband voiced dissent regarding our own version of events in that documentary so more to come on that discussion um and moving swiftly on from three identical strangers on to my pick of the week which is as promised from last week's episode the second film of the london palestine film festival that i watched the first one being western arabs the second one is najwa najjar's between Heaven and Earth, which has been touring the festival circuit and been doing very, very well. So as part of my work at BBC Arabic, um, I work on the program, the film program Cinema Badila. And as part of that, I've been corresponding with Najwa on and off for the past year uh, via WhatsApp to arrange interviews and so on. So I've been wanting to watch that film for a while. Um, so I was really happy to catch it on their online platform via the Barbican. So the premise of the film is deceptively simple 
It's the story of a fairly comfortable and attractive Palestinian couple who want to get divorced. Now, in order for their divorce to be finalised, they need to obtain identity papers for the husband's father. So the husband's called Tamir. And his father was a well-known Palestinian revolutionary killed in Beirut in the 1970s. And when they tried to get these papers together, they hit a discrepancy. So official records show him living at a residence um, that wasn't mentioned in those papers with a son called Tamir as opposed to Tamir and linking him to a Jewish Iraqi woman. Now, the, our main character, our protagonist, has never heard of that woman. He's never heard of this other, this Tamir guy, and he's, he doesn't know about this residence. But he has to get the papers together in order for his divorce to go through. So they set off to track down the woman, the mysterious Tam, uh, Tamir, um, and the residence on a road trip that takes them in and out of the West Bank, Israeli territories, official Palestinian territory, basically through the web that has become this entire region. So so it's a very good drama. The two leads are very charismatic, very attractive. But I was specifically impressed with its really brilliant reflection on um, two major underexplored topics. So I'll try to explain it thus. The first one is the issue all the issues around Palestinian identity and the absurdity of the geography of the occupation. So I was watching it with Chris and he kept asking where they are. Are they in Israel? Are they in Palestine? What's the West Bank? Why do they cross a border to get to that point? Why is there a checkpoint there? Why does that identity paper not work here? Why do they need a permit to cross into there and so on? And his confusion really sums up what a Kafkaesque geography mm. of the place is and why a two-state solution is kind of ridiculous at this point. Because what you have basically is bits of land that are still Palestine, crisscrossed with Israeli settlements and checkpoints and roads that only settlers are allowed on and so on. So they're little bits of land that are completely disconnected. There's a very good short film called The Present by Farah Nabulsi, which is also uh, doing the festival circuit at the moment. Um, and it won loads of awards. Very, very good, very simple. And it's basically a Palestinian guy trying to get a, his wife a present, something which should be very mundane and very quick and easy. And actually goes through hell, he goes through like a, loads of checkpoints and loads of, um, loads of borders and loads of crossings and loads of this and that to try and finally get the present for his wife. Anyway, back to the film. So the way it illustrated that, the setting for their road trip was really interesting. As part of that reflection, it's one of the only films that I've seen and I, I think has come out that portrays well-off Palestinians. So Najjar describes them as middle class. They have a, they drive a Mercedes, they live in a nice house with a pool and so on. But they're still subjected to the same restrictions. So they're searched and stopped, they, they need permits, etc. The other issue that I thought was very interesting, but very contentious, and I didn't know about, and which incidentally brings to mind the kinds of debates that I assume will be provoked by um, Little White Lie, is, um, so I'll explain the setup basically without giving too much away. By telling this story, Najjar explores what is actually a historical reality, and that is of Israeli authorities forcibly taking babies away from Arab Jewish families so whether they be, they be Palestinians, Iraqi, Lebanese and so on, and giving them to white Jewish families, who are usually immigrants and settlers from Europe and America, who would then raise them as white. That's the most just simple illustration of basically what at heart is a white colonial enterprise at the heart of the occupation movement. So how are they adopted and um, raised with them? Uh, did I miss that? They're not adopted, they're taken. So in the film, okay. the... I don't kind of want to reveal too much, but basically to give you an example that's explored in the film, um, a woman gives birth and then she's told by the doctor that the baby's died mm -hmm. or she takes the baby to the hospital when the baby's a few months old for uh, an, an illness of so, some kind and then the doctor comes back to her and tells her, well, we're very sorry, but you know, your, your baby's passed away. Because I watched it as part of the festival. She did an intro before the film where she explains the setup and she explains how um, she uncovered these, th this story and how she's portraying it in the film. It brought up loads of issues, but it was really well told and it had lots of sympathetic characters and loads of little episodes strung together 
by this um, road trip through the region. Right. In terms of festival picks, again, Film Fest Report have uh, brought to our attention the Ljubljana LGBT Film Festival, which is taking place in Ljubljana, Slovenia, and it will have a online presence for Slovenia-based audiences. And apparently it's the oldest LGBT film festival in Europe and at the same time, the oldest international film festival in Slovenia. And that will take place from the 12th to the 20th of December. And I'll put a link to the website in the blurb. Okay. So my first topic is the trial of the Chicago 7. So the film's based on the infamous 1969 trial of seven defendants charged by the federal government with conspiracy arising from the protests at the Chicago Democratic National Convention in 1968. So... It was initially the Chicago 8 because Bobby Seale was part of that. But ultimately his, I think he had a mistrial. Gosh, it sounds really bad. I don't recall exactly. But they were all eight initially arrested and charged with inciting a riot. So the protesters say the police incited and the prosecution obviously say the Chicago 8 came to Chicago with the sole purpose of inciting a riot not to protest. And the trial is about that. Now, I wasn't familiar with this. Um, apparently though, it's an important trial in free speech and the, now I can't remember who it was. It was one person who's still alive and he said it was very true. He thought true to the story. I mean, I, I thought Bobby Seale was going to play a bigger role based on the trailer and he kind of left midway. So I lost, <laughs> I lost a bit of interest to be honest, <laughs> midway, especially, you know, they feature Fred Hampton too, which is long overdue for the Hollywood treatment of a story, but then maybe not because it might turn into a birth of a nation situation. Uh, but which maybe we shouldn't would cover that too. Cause I enjoyed birth of a nation. However, I thought there were some key things in there mm-hmm. that really, that weren't true that I think put in a bit of an mm-hmm. anti-black message, nothing to do with Nate Parker because, and that's the thing I hate to say because it seems like uh, the director Nate Parker went through so much to get that film made. So I would hate to say anything yeah. negative about it, given given all he went through. And then, of course, the way he was treated on the. Well, after. Yeah. That. Yeah. That was that was awful. So, yeah, maybe maybe we won't do that film. then. Uh, well, no, maybe we should, though, because I think the real story should be told. We'll think about it. But uh, it was still an interesting story to think about how the different tactics were discussed, because one was all about politics saying you have to get people, you have to get elected officials in office. You have to change policy. That's the only way forward. And the other, I believe was Abby Hoffman. No, it's about changing the culture. And I think we still have that central Mm -hmm. argument today. So the two of the films that we are going to talk about today are Little White Lie and The Imposter. So which one do, would you like to start with? Apple? How about The Imposter? Because I haven't actually watched Little White Lie, so I'll be intrigued to hear what you've got to say about it. Well, actually, no, I was actually more concerned about The Imposter because my question to you is going to be more as a mother, right? Since you are a mother, I've only been a child, so I can, but you can see it from a mother's perspective if Layla goes missing and comes back with brown eyes, will that be Layla? So, so not quick synopsis. The Imposter is a 2012 documentary about the 1997 case of French confidence trickster Frédéric Bourdin, who impersonated Nicholas Barclay, a Texas boy who disappeared at the age of 13 in 1994. So the story opens with the imposter. They, and I think it's so well done the way they did the documentary. It just really draws you in because they combine the story with Frédéric narrating and being Mm-hmm. being interviewed but providing a narration and then they're reenacting as he tells the story although there were some jerks who said oh i couldn't tell if it was real how could there be footage of that <laughs> okay it was cl- you know the shot was clear and this was in the 90s so how would that have happened like him telling the story of going to an orphanage from spain who would have shot that although they anyway will very well done i it's one of those documentaries, mm-hmm. in my opinion, that makes you say, wow, I wish I had a story to tell like that because I couldn't find any fault in the way they shot it, the way they told the story, especially something so complicated. They kept it uh, time-wise an hour and 40 minutes, which mm-hmm. I thought was 
extraordinary. Yeah, succinct. Yeah. yeah, to be able to do that. And like I said, the story didn't, the way they brought in characters, you just, you could just jump right in on it. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is he impersonates young people to get access to welfare services. And in one case, though, the questions, it gets a little bit too hot and he tries to figure out an identity, another one that he can use, a real person, to continue to get services. But this time he makes a mistake and he is impersonating someone from the U.S. And it's what happens from there because it actually ends up working out for him. So, of course, the question then becomes, this is going to be full of spoilers. The sister has to fly to Europe to go pick him up. Now, Nicholas Barkley, the boy who he's impersonating, at this time would have been 17, right? 16, 17. So he disappeared in 1994. They find him in 1997. Now, Frederic, his mother is a white French woman. His father is Algerian. Is it Algerian or Moroccan? Algerian, I think. So... Frederic, although we know you're going to get people, oh, they can come out any kind of way. Yes, I get that. But he very much looks like he is from <laughs> that part of the world. So he's, you know, olive skin, brown hair, brown eyes. Being from the U.S., you would not mistake him for a white man. Well, I guess depending what part of the U.S. you're from. <laughs> if you're not from Florida right, <laughs> or California, you're not going to make that mistake, Okay. Not only that, more importantly, Nicholas has blonde hair and blue eyes when he disappears. Now, we do know that children's hair color can change. So the brown hair, possibly the skin and the eyes, no. And yet the sister accepts him as her brother. So then the question becomes, is it fraudulent where she's desperate for anyone to be her brother because they're trying to cover something up that happened to Nicholas Barkley or... Is it denial? And I think that's just the overall question. And I really left the documentary saying, I don't know, because I don't want to believe that the family did something to this boy. At the same time, as much as I joke about wanting to be an only child, I can't imagine my sister disappearing and picking up a light-skinned black woman with green eyes and bringing her back home, (laughs) right? And I wanted to get rid of her as well. And I'd be desperate to have her back. Then, of course, you have the guilt, like, wow, I always wish she'd be gone, and now she is. Ah, But perhaps denial and really intense depression and desperation could do that to you. Yeah, it could. I think the documentary at least the filmmaker somewhere was leaned towards suspecting the family of being behind his disappearance. And I refer you to the not so subtle shot at the end of a spade planted in the garden. (laughs) No, that, and that's, and that was interesting too. So the person, when he comes, so as we've said, Frederic is French. Nicholas is from Texas. Frederic is He's an actor, but he's not that good an actor. So he cannot pretend to have an American accent. <laughs> very actor. strong French accent. Yes. <laughs> yes. He, but although his English is, is excellent, that's also a stereotype. And it played out here. His English is excellent. And yet, you would not think he was an American. Because not it's also the Americanisms. It's the way you speak. Especially, imagine a teenager in Texas. They'd be riddled with all sorts of things. Although his story was that he'd been kidnapped and been away. But nevertheless you would still have a particular pattern of speech. No, it's all so implausible. Well, the pattern of speech, everything. So I remember there was one bit where he attributed the change, the um, eye, the change in eye colour to stress, I think, to like <laughs> post-traumatic stress disorder or experiments they did on him that was yeah, they, so... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? I think it was some experiments, something. It was something crazy, something so crazy you're like, huh. But that's what you but mean. That, it's like he has some yeah. stories. But that's what I was, I w- I'd be interested to know. So in the end, do you feel sympathetic towards him? Because I think what, what the documentary does is elicit sympathy for him. And well, that's should. something that the documentary disorder. filmmaker went out of his way to do because he actually says in an interview that 
um, he, inv- well, I'm quoting, right? I saw this in an interview, but that he invites sympathy. He has this childlike quality about him and he can be very charming. And yeah, at other times artist. he can be quite repellent because he can be remorseless and you're reminded of what he did. Um, so as a filmmaker, I was asking, how can I find a way of getting the audience to experience a bit of that? And I actually think he's very successful in doing that um, because not only does he elicit quite a lot of sympathy for uh, Baudin, but even his more remorse, his remorselessness actually comes off as more daring and ballsy than just purely sadistic. You're like, oh, well, that's impressive. I mean, you really pulled that out of your ass, really. And all the excuses that he gave were so impressive in just how bonkers they were. But I also I think this is largely due to the fact that he wanted to suggest that the family was behind it. But we're trying to also come up with a plausible explanation, right? Because you want to, and it's not a way to play a devil's advocate. It's a way to think, just have some empathy and say, how could you be in their position? Now, I think Frederic, he certainly, he certainly is pretty much of a, a monster because what he does is he is impersonating these missing children. So giving families false hope. I mean, you, you can't yeah. get much worse than that. That's pretty bad. Uh so I, but that, but that's just it. But that's all Karen artists are charming and he has to have a personality about him. That's how he lures mm-hmm. people in. That's how you want to be friends with him. He knows how yeah. to be what he needs to be at the time. But there's something, I don't know if you felt that, but there was something jarring in the fact that he was a con artist because he came across in the documentary as very naive. There was something what? very... No, no but maybe that's how the image he and I think a mix of that and the fact that genuinely because he did it to get welfare to get social services to support him I ended up feeling sorry for him no I, I do know what you mean but but that's just it's like I I would have felt that if he hadn't actually impersonated real missing ch- because that's the problem right ultimately he should no one should have to mm-hmm live like that and that's a common complaint you hear about people saying like well that's why they're against welfare because they see people get benefits and they don't get them and it's like well no that's the reason to expand it not to restrict (laughs) restrict it right that's why you say we need more of it and of course he's a prime example of that like he should never have been backed into a corner because why should he not get housing and live rough because he's over 18 or 21 you know whatever they set the limit at. i don't know when he starts yeah. impersonating real children, though, and playing with the emotions of family, that's when it, it crosses the line. Because yeah. I, I just think there's a way to not... And that's why he did it in different places, right? That's why he was serial, because it didn't seem like he did that all the time. So mm-hmm. it seems like once he was had no option except for to come up with a, a, a real family, because that was the problem in... And we didn't mention that, actually. I don't think my... <laughs> My synopsis was very good. So what happened was he had been, and so he he was a serial impersonator of children and he knew how to act very young. So he was in his early twenties, but he would impersonate teenagers in their late teens in order to get to the youth hostel and get enrolled in school and get housing, some security. However, in this situation, it seems like that was kind of the MO that they ultimately want to have family reunification. And there was a lot of pressure to get the details of his family. And that is how he came up with becoming Nicholas, because he had to produce a family. He had to produce people looking for him in order to legitimate his claim on these services. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like before he would leave and then start the process all over again somewhere else, which I would have preferred yeah. him to do than to play with these people's pain at the same time. And that's why it's just, it, it begs so many questions because it seems like when he was doing that, it never would go past him calling people and impersonating them because you can't no. do it in person for obvious reasons. So the fact that in this way, I mean, he got a passport. Do you hear what I'm saying? He got a passport. And luckily, I mean, I guess it's the only time you'd ever say that. Luckily, there was a racist <laughs> officer of the law who said, mm, something is wrong here. We have a terrorist. He saw that brown skin and that accent and said, terrorist, there's something happening here. 
All of it, I, I don't know. And I, it is bizarre that he thinks a terrorist would come to that small town, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're a terrorist, I believe you want to be inconspicuous. That's step number one. <laughs> you don't you don't blend in impersonating a white teenager as a brown man. But hey, that was his logic. And it Who was to argue with that. Yeah, exactly. But no, I I didn't think he was trying. To, I mean, I didn't get that impression that the director was trying to paint a sympathetic character. If anything, I think he wanted to make him a person as opposed to uh, because we have. A character in mind right we definitely depersonalize someone when we say mm-hmm. a con artist it's like they take yeah. advantage of good yeah. pe- we have the con artist we have a have good people and that's i think the line he was trying to take away it's like no okay no you're right you're right apologies yeah i should have yeah exactly well that's no his, no his... no we, we can have different opinions we don't have to no but I, I agree it's it's humanizing him uh but he didn't have what i meant was he didn't have a particular agenda racks to grind about him being responsible he, his focus was also on the family's role in the matter. That's the thing. He wasn't. It wasn't a documentary purely about a con artist. It was also a documentary about this family and what they're, how they're interpreting that situation, how they're mm-hmm. dealing with it, and what it might or might not hide. And and I think and the key piece about that too, we should add, is that the his story got the attention of the FBI. And so mm-hmm. they had to investigate. Now, he was taken by an agent to see a psychologist because he was making the circuit, the TV circuit, talking about all of these awful things that had happened in, as part of, because his story of how he left Texas was that he was part of this international sex ring with boys. Yeah. So really horrific stuff he was coming up with of what happened to him and making the rounds on tv which that was he was begging to get caught then you think well yeah that's it that's why there's something about it there's something that feels very earnest about what he was doing because you'd think surely surely you don't believe this is gonna you're gonna you're gonna get away with this well it was believable though because even the fbi agent we should add believed his story she totally believed it yeah. And the only thing that raised the question was she took him to a psychologist and once the psychologist met him because he knows understands child development, he said there is no way that this kid is an American because of the way he speaks English. Mm-hmm. So he immediately drew that conclusion. So the FBI agent then calls the sister and says, I don't know who this is, but this is not your brother. So we'll take it from here because they flew somewhere to see the psychologist, the FBI agent and Frederic. Yeah. So when, and this is according to the FBI agent. Okay. This is the story she's telling. So then she said, leave it with me. You don't have to interact with this individual. We will figure it out. Then when they come to the airport, she said the sister was there. And she was like, what? And she called the agency because she didn't know what to do. She's like, is he dangerous? Should I take him with me? And they said, which was also weird, they said, oh, just just let him go with her. And they were going to do their due diligence on their end, which also raises like, oh, my, he could have been anybody. But I guess she figured, hey, she came to pick him up and less work and money for us. So we'll just let let him go (laughs) with her. And the sister then said she didn't recall that. And that's not something you would forget. That's not a conversation that you would forget. If you had yeah. it. So, but then of course, what incentive would the FBI agent have to lie? Unless of course, but it's also possible maybe she didn't say it. And then looking back, she realizes that that was a dangerous situation. She put the family in and now she has to say that she told her that. Mm-hmm. What happened was after the psychologist visit, she mm-hmm. the FBI agent says that she called the sister and she told her, this is not your brother. This is a stranger based on the psychologist's okay. finding and don't pick him up from the airport. And when she arrives back in Texas, the sister is at the airport to collect him. Yes. The sister says that she does not recall that conversation. So someone's lying because that is not a conversation you'd forget. So either 
the FBI agent told her that or she didn't. But but that's just what that's another thing I think that makes the story so compelling is nobody's a reliable character really narrator I mean character no one is reliable Frederic certainly has his reasons no, for lying yeah. the sister and the mom certainly have their reasons for lying uh, nobody I would argue the FBI agents don't really have much reason for lying I think they do because you don't want to be liable for anything that happened. And then, uh, it, but it also yeah. still goes back to the family. Like, how how could you look at that man and think that was your brother? And you, there's yeah. just no getting around that. And no. as a mother, you know, as a mother now, <laughs> Abla, that's why I think, because I've asked several mothers who I've mm-hmm. begged to watch this, even my own mom, and that is what she couldn't get around. Like, I know my kids. I think it depends on what kind of person you are. As you know, I'm very, very easily persuaded by other people. I don't know. I don't. I wouldn't be able to pronounce. You. I would. Yes. You. You would say that. But then, mm-hmm. what exactly would be the double impact of both grief, a maddening grief, and a genuine fear of? not believing that person just in case there's a tiny chance this person is indeed your child that kind of goes back to the other question too with the officials why on earth like how did that get past them well exactly that's it what struck me is that they just willingly accept that version of events they never really question it at all there would be some level of incredulity where you like this is am i willing to believe that small chance that it might be right yeah but that's what i mean that's why this documentary was so well done because yeah you just yeah and and the other thing too right in terms of the family doing something to him Mm -hmm. i would also think it'd be easier it's always easier to have someone missing than someone fake show up so surely what would be their reason for having him there versus having him a runaway because nobody was looking for him anymore So let's say they had done something to him. They got away with it. So it would have been better for them to leave it as that versus bringing in an imposter or a substitute, we should say. I mean, it's no one's looking for him. Well, yeah. Also, because now there's a a bigger spotlight shed on (laughs) the disappearance of the boy. Right. Absolutely. And disappearance. You would like to think there's no way I would accept someone, especially he was... Yeah, he was brown. Like, and they're in Texas. And so any conclusive remarks about the imposter? It's an oldie but goodie. So it's from 2012. So gosh, pretty soon it will be a decade old, but it is so worth the watch. Uh, well, <laughs> I what he's I... up to these days. Oh, Frederick? Him up. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I totally looked it up. So of course he has Duh. like three or four kids, but his wife left him. So now he's a single dad. Aww. And he's still really into Michael Jackson. And so his kids sing <laughs> <laughs> that's a must watch i think especially now the holidays are coming up they'll be i think more binge watching so put it on the list and now moving on to the second film which sadly i haven't watched but i've read about okay you're gonna have to watch it um so it's little white life from 2014 so luckily some anonymous writer wrote a great synopsis on imdb little white lie tells Lacey Swartz's story of growing up in a typical upper middle class Jewish household in Woodstock, New York, with loving parents and a strong sense of her Jewish identity, despite the questions from those around her about how a white girl could have such dark skin. She believes her family's explanation that her looks were inherited from her dark skinned Sicilian grandfather. But when her parents abruptly split, and I hope everyone knows that sounds crazy, because it's one thing to be a dark skinned Sicilian, which we. <laughs> Which we know, you know, in the Mediterranean, we know right people are part Arab and African. We get that. Emphasis on the part. You don't mistake them for black. Anyway. But her parents abruptly split. Her gut starts to tell her something different. At 18, she finally confronts her mother and learns the truth. Her biological father was not the man who raised her, but a black man named Rodney with whom her mother had an affair. Afraid of losing her relationship with her parents, Lacey doesn't openly acknowledge her newly discovered black identity with her white family until her biological father dies shortly before Lacey's 30th birthday. Now, if I'm honest, I could believe that she was, her roots were Sicilian only because she looks, she kind of looks Moroccan actually. So, it's not too much of a stretch to believe that 
somewhere her family had Mediterranean roots and that there was some mixing with um, at some point with someone from North Africa. It is a stretch and I'll tell you why. Okay, if you met Lacey in Sicily, okay, yes. But if you met Lacey in her parents, you're not going to believe she's a throwback baby. And and we have to remember in the context, right? Because we're seeing her in New York. She looks like a black woman in New York. I, I just, it's it's about who's running around there, right? In the racial context, because every every place racializes people differently. You know, I used to back in the day. And I'm kind of reminded of the story because I was just thinking about when I met them. I Well, we won't name him, but I used to know someone. And when I first met him, I immediately thought he was a black person. And I just did. And that has to do with the way I've racialized. Because typical of a lot of black Americans, you have very light skinned people in your family and dark skinned people in your family. That's just what it is. You've got both. Now, interestingly, so I met him in London. Everyone who met him saw their own race. There was a woman I used to hang out with. She thought he was Italian. She's Italian. Everyone thought he was what they were. And it was very interesting. So, yeah, you see, if, from, if, I don't know her family. Context, I've not seen her family. But yeah, if, if I, it was just okay, a picture of her, well, I would believe she's Arabic, for example. Okay, well, her parents look like two white people. No one's her skin color. Now, her father loved to play. And that's... But, so I think what's interesting, so let, let's back up, okay, from Little White Lies. So how Lacey frames the story is that this secret is like any secret. Of course, it's, of course, it's a huge lie, right? <laughs> Which is why she's calling Little White Lie to be you, kind of funny. I guess you kind of have to have humor in a situation like this. But it's any sort of lie that is part of the family that's really the elephant in the room. So the lie, and all families have them, right? These sort of lies and secrets that keep the family together that are so obvious to everyone else. And not only that, but the lies are so toxic, they're tearing the family apart, even though people are keeping the secret and telling the lie because they think it's keeping the family together. But this one's just, again, so glaringly obvious to everyone. You're like, "Mm, if you're going to pick a lie... It's got to be one that you can actually feel comfortable lying about. And and there's a scene because she goes back and she talks to the people she grew up with and she speaks to her high school boyfriend who, like her, also had a white mother and a black father. Well, maybe I'm misspeaking. Maybe he had it the opposite. But either way, he had a white parent and a black parent. So when he goes to her house and coincidentally, her biological father is there and he thought they were the craziest people. He was like, what is up with them? They're like sitting here and this man is obviously her dad. And they're, acting like, they're acting like this is a family friend and everyone's just eating dinner like this is normal. And he was a child and he said, oh my God, these people are crazy. So I was going to ask, so her adoptive, well, not adoptive, I'm not sure what to call him, but the, the man her who father. raised her yeah, as her his father. daughter. Yeah, we call yeah. her father. Well, yeah, her, her father, basically. Um, What what did he know? I mean, that's the, that's the thing. Like, I, I don't think you would be able to tell when they're born because we all know, especially, um, you know, babies when they're born can look all kinds of ways, right? Yeah. But I would imagine when she hit a few, <laughs> few months old, although I don't know this, but certainly by the time she was a toddler, she looks like a little black girl by the time she's but, a toddler. And but it doesn't but, say, the documentary doesn't say when they had that conversation. Well, it does. It Well, they have different conversations over time, but her father was the one who came up with this story about her inheriting her appearance from his, it was his Sicilian grandfather. And he believed that. I'm not saying he did. I'm saying that's a story he told. But who's to say if he believed it? That's the other thing too. And it, and that's why I think it goes so well with the imposter because you're wondering, is it his unwillingness to accept? Because we all know it's one thing to have an affair, but that's why everyone hates when the children come about because it's one thing to have an affair, you can move past it. But then when you've got the evidence alive, that changes but do we see, everything. Don't we see his reaction to the documentary? Don't we see his reaction to her finding her biologi- biological father? I believe that that is likely what led to the parents break up, right? Kind, kind of sick of living this with the mom, right? Because they break up. And I think once the father has some distance, he's able to just be honest. Mm-hmm. Because it's kind of what everyone knows, but nobody wants to talk about. Okay. 
Because, you know, like I said, it's one thing because we, we, you know, you see families like that where you have one sibling who's in white families, right? A sibling who's fair skin and light eyes and light hair and their sibling is olive complexion with dark hair and dark I mean that's not uncommon but that's oh, no, my family ex- my family's all like that my mum's very um she's got olive skin and black hair and brown eyes and she's got two sisters and one of them's blonde and blue eyed and has freckles she's very fair and the other one's got um brown hair and green eyes yeah yeah so you see that yeah but if your mother had a sibling like Lacey somebody would be asking questions and saying okay there's a range here and you're falling yeah. out of that range so that's all I'm saying. And I think that's the better analogy. If your mother had a sister like Lacey, where they just said, mm, okay, that makes sense. Mm, run of the mill. Okay. No, that falls a bit too far. <laughs> it's the truth. It's the truth. Just like, right? Just like when you have too many of one, you'd be like, mm. and actually, interestingly, one of the murder mysteries I was watching that came up where the dad, he was at the pool and his child he just saw her in another light he was like she doesn't look anything like me <laughs> it's the, i'm telling you what happened <laughs> and the mom denied his wife denied 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 and fathers have that too where they're like i know my kids i'm not crazy she just gotta because you know children's features change yeah and you know they grow over the summer he said mm, mm. well and sure enough it was his best friend's Oh wow, not his. So, oh, so, so interesting. I've just I've just seen a picture of the real father of the biological father. They would not yeah. have a child that looks like that. So yes, oh, a yeah, he he looks a child, lot like her. Olive child, yes. Black child, no. Less so. And so- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I think he is. It seemed like because the times you see the death, they tried to have you know different conversations. Um, and I think he's certainly struggling with the truth because he feels like, you know, I've spent my life raising someone else's child and he wanted, well, yeah. he wanted a wife, he wanted a family and he wasn't able to have that. So I think it's also mourning the loss because that's the thing. Once you admit it, then you have to accept what you put up with and what you didn't have because you spent time with them because, you know, that's the thing. He's probably mad at himself that at the end of the day, he should have left when she was two. And then he could have gone on to have children if he wanted. Uh, yeah, but if if he, he if he raised her and they've developed a, a father daughter bond, that's it. I mean, he can consider her as his daughter, and she can consider her consider him her, her father. Now, the fact that you had to throw consider in there means we all know the truth. Look, I'm all about that. I don't see anything wrong with people bonding and considering and all that. We also know how people are. There's a reason why people spend thousands of dollars to have biological children, because it means something. There's, you know, and I know a lot of people don't put a lot of stock in that, and that's fine. We all have to live in our truth, as they say. But that's the reality, especially for men. You know how men are. They want their legacy. And she robbed him of that through her lying. Oh, yeah. But it's it's also the fact that he participated in that lie. And then, of course, you also question, like, why everybody else was so silent, because throughout the documentary, you hear lots of interventions from strangers because it's so obvious. (laughs) You you almost can't not say anything. And in fact, there's a, a famous, not a famous, but it's a popular one where someone saw her at the synagogue and said, oh, we have Ethiopian Jews here. Awesome. Not that, I, you know, I think to think of she's Ethiopian is also whatever, but she wanted some explanation for why a black person would be there. Like, you don't yeah. belong. Let's figure out a way how you could belong. And <laughs> that also is what leads me to think, I don't totally believe Lacey's story because this is where, because, you know, I'm going to have a, a, a problem with some aspects of this, right? So one of the issues was this. So when she applied for college, one of them was Georgetown and where she ultimately went. And you have to include a photo. And her story was this, that she filled out the application. She left the race box blank. And then when they sent her her admissions letter, they admitted her as a black admit. And that then, once she went to Georgetown, she said that allowed her to live her life as a black woman explore that identity and I call BS on that first of all 
if you know you're white, as she says, that's her story is that she grew up thinking she was white. You would have checked the white box. You would not have had a hesitation. You wouldn't have had a question. You would have just checked the white box. Oh, she hadn't found out at that stage. That's her story. And I'm saying I call BS. Otherwise, why would you not check the white box? Yeah, yeah. It's because you had a mirror at home. Now, then she goes on where somehow it's acceptable for her to then get admitted. So it's like, you don't want to be black when you have to go through mm-hmm. the trauma of accepting that your biological father isn't your father or, or one of them. Like who knows where, you know, at this point you don't know, maybe you're adopted totally. Maybe neither of them are your biological parents. Yeah. She does look like her mom. So, you know, maybe she did figure out it had to be her dad, but she doesn't know. Right. At this point, according to her, she doesn't know. So why then do you think you get to take a black person's spot at the university? Yeah. Like, well, that's the ethical there aren't that conundrum many spots. it raises. It's it makes how her far awful. do you live like a white person? When no, it makes basically... her totally awful in my opinion, because if you have all the benefits of being a white person, you have your upper middle class family in Woodstock, you have your white friends in social networks, you don't get to take a black person's spot at the, I don't care who your dad, because you didn't live in the projects with your dad. So since you didn't, mm-hmm. I don't understand what consequences of blackness you suffer from that allows you to take that affirmative action spot. Shame well, that's the uncomfortable, exactly. But that's the uncomfortable segregation between race and class that's at play in uh, positive discrimination. So you get a place because you're black, not because it's assumed that as part of um, the black class in the US, you are more likely to face a hell of a lot of obstacles and hurdles. Well, that's the logic. And that's why I think it's a problem, right? Because I think, I think affirmative action was meant to say, everything you suffer from is intergenerational. So even if you are black and middle class, you certainly don't live like a white middle-class person, right? Of course, you live better than a black person in poverty, which is, you know, most black people have no wealth, right? So you live better than most black people, but these are the institutional relationships you have, and it's intergenerational, which is why you get that. Now, Lacey has none of that. She's not suffering the consequences of being her father's daughter. She Mm -hmm. has intergenerational... White money is what it sounds like to me. So I don't know. And I don't know what discrimination she faced. But just because you suffer discrimination doesn't mean you get affirmative action. That just means you suffer discrimination. Lots of people suffer discrimination. It doesn't. I mean, so. Yeah, but not on the basis of being black. Right. People can suffer discrimination for all sorts of reasons, which is why affirmative action isn't for that. Otherwise, everybody would get it. In that case, fat, ugly white men would get affirmative action because I'm sure their careers have suffered a lot of blows. But that's not something that you remedy with affirmative action. I mean, there is no remedy for it, but and probably because you don't really suffer that much. But nevertheless, discrimination, if you wanted to say that's what it was. But and she knows because then she also went to law school. So I would also bet that she also used that to get into law school. How is that acceptable? They've not encountered That's awful. No, absolutely. So I'm sure her biological father's children aren't going to Harvard. And that tells you all you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure of it. Well, it's the truth. And and she didn't explore that in that film. Interestingly, she didn't talk about her siblings at all because apparently her, her biological parents, they were both having affairs. So her father was married. Her biological father was married and her mother was married, obviously. She didn't talk to any of those siblings. She didn't talk to his wife. It's like, aren't you something? Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So she kept it very much about her herself yes. and um, her position in that white family. Exactly. And also getting her mother to talk about it as well, because her mother also, when she wanted to have a discussion with her, when she came, when she was coming home from and I'm going to assume it was Christmas break or summer but after being at Georgetown saying you know we need to have a conversation and her mom didn't want to talk to her about it so that shows you how deep the lie was going and I don't think her mom was very repentant as well and you just wonder like you ruined your (laughs) husband's life you don't think (laughs) well she did and I'm not I'm not saying she should no but that's a huge punish for that but to not think you should be repentant you know, you you don't, 
you don't have to feel guilty, but you would think you would say like, you know, even though I've already done so, I certainly want to take this opportunity on record to apologize for what I put my ex-husband through. No. What are your conclusive words about um, Little White Lie? I don't know. I almost feel like you have to see it now, Alex. I really need your input. I don't think I can just do it alone. Uh, I think it is an interesting story about secrets, but I also think that Lacey left out a lot in terms of what the real benefits to her of being white were. And, you know, if she had looked differently, I think, I think she would have been happy continuing on with that. Right. There was a, an, a similar story about this woman who her father was, and he was, he was, I can't remember his name. It's Anatoly something, but anyway, her father was passing as white. And now her mother knew, but he never told his kids. And ultimately he had a nervous breakdown because of the lie he was living. Because initially when he started passing, he was passing just to work, but still had his social life as a black man. And then over time, he just left being black behind totally. And then it became a complete secret as opposed to passing. So anyway, she found out because he developed terminal cancer. He had a nervous breakdown and his psychologist, psychiatrist told him to just tell his kids the truth. And he did. And the son just kind of shrugged and said, well, I'm still white, you know, life, (laughs) white life goes on. Meanwhile, the daughter has a whole identity crisis. And of course she has to go on a road trip and write a book. (laughs) So people react differently. Oh, that's another one to watch. (laughs) Well, just saying they do. Oh, that's that's a book. That's not a film. I didn't get that. Okay. Oh, I, I looked through that book a bit and I wanted to throw up. Look, look. Uh, I have to say, I'm quite impressed just, with how well curated this episode was, given the nice, nicely woven red, red thread through the um, picks of the week and the two films. But yeah, yeah. you got to watch it, Abla. I can hear the it. ambulances and police cars going past in your very dangerous <laughs> neighborhood. I hope you're safe whatever (laughs) whatever my dear it's not dangerous you know my dad no no that's gonna worry my neighbor is not no that's the whole point i'm being sarcastic because it's precious (laughs) london bridge you you know my dad won't get that he'll just say actually no cut that out because he might give me some money to pay rent somewhere else so cut cut that last part out leave do not include me saying it's not dangerous you leave that out because yeah no that'll be perfect yes 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 and then if he asks me about it i'll say well it's not great but it's what i could afford oh it's perfect okay cut that out for this week Thank you very much for listening. You can follow us on um, Twitter at MyDialorama or go on our website, mydialorama.org.uk. Have a good week.